Welcome to The Foundry, where leaders are forged daily. Each week, we investigate themes of leadership, entrepreneurship, and mindset with some of the greatest minds in real estate. And now, the data scientist of real estate, George Roberts. Welcome back, Foundry family. I want to thank you for your viewership and listenership. You've helped this podcast to become what it is today. Without you, there is no podcast. The next two episodes will highlight the best of the first 127 episodes. We will resume our regularly scheduled programming one week from today. Enjoy. Catch you on the flip side. So one of the things that's on my mind is Central Florida. You know, this is a place where I transact. You know, I uh, bought a deal from you recently yeah. and I just love this place. I mean, depending on how you define Central Florida, I mean, we have as many as uh, 1,100 people moving there every week. So uh, what do you really think about uh, Central Florida? Where are people moving? Uh, and are these trends going to continue? So where are people moving? The answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is not where. The answer is where they're not moving. It, I, you can't find a market in the greater Florida area where there is not significant population growth and significant job growth. You randomly throw a dart and you're going to hit some place where people or rents are going up right now. It's absolutely astonishing. One of the big drivers for investors right now, you, you gave off all the ominous statistics, uh, interest rates, inflation, blah, blah, blah. You can be the best operator with incredible skill set and do okay in a declining market. You can be an average operator and do very well in a incredibly fast growing market. It leaves you a lot of room for error to invest in Central Florida because there is massive population and job growth. But you're, you're basically hopping on a wave of the, the macroeconomics here. And barring some massive, I don't know, event, I don't see anything that's about to slow down the population growth here. I, I actually think it's going to get more going forward. Yeah, I love it. I completely concur. I think Florida is great for business. Uh, people that didn't like those COVID restrictions, people that just want to move around, people that love the weather. I mean, there are a hundred reasons to move to Florida. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I buy apartments in Florida. <laughs> it's it's nice to uh, to have a business trip that you don't mind taking. Now, yeah, uh, let exactly. me highlight a couple places here, like Ocala and the Villages. Now, these are places that I think of in terms of some explosive growth. They may be some smaller, less populated areas now, but if you look at the relative change. I mean, these places are going like crazy. If you look at the demographic projections, I mean, Ocala is supposed to to grow just by leaps and bounds over the next ten or twenty years. Do you do you think that's sustainable, or do you think we're going to kind of level off or slow down in that growth in these areas? I I do not. I mean, if you drive through there, you drive up and down like the Turnpike heading toward seventy five, you will see is about two miles of solid construction across where the villages is. If you drive up, you get up to Ocala right there. You've got the World Equestrian Center, which is which they just built, which is an absolutely stunning facility. And you have massive growth. You also have a number of large distribution centers being put in right there on the I-4, on the I-75 corridor along Ocala, which is going to bring really an incredible amount of job growth, which drives population growth. And it's interesting, you're talking about the Ocala villages market. 
And you didn't even mention Winter Haven and Lakeland, which is another incredibly fast growing market dead center between Tampa and Orlando. Yeah, I would have to say, you know, if we were going to talk about another one, that would be one that I would love to talk about because, you know, I've always felt uh, and obviously influenced by Neil Bauer here that you want to go for the path of progress. Right. And that I four quarter, it's just amazing. And everything I would say from Daytona to Tampa is growing like nuts. But between Orlando and Tampa, it's it's growing super, super amazing. And and you don't have some of the barriers to entry. I know that it seems like even maybe 18 months ago in Tampa, you might have to uh, put down money day one. Your money may go hard day one. That's a hard market to break into. But some of these markets yeah, in between. Just put them, just step up. <laughs> well, about that. You if you're going to close people, it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, there you go. Hey, look, if it's the right deal and you know what you're doing, I would say absolutely. But um, I might suggest personally uh, for those that want a, a gentler on ramp that uh, areas like, yeah, Lakeland, uh, Winter Haven might provide a little bit of a gentler uh, approach, but you still have those great demographic tailwinds out there. You, you I, Basically anywhere in Florida. I mean, we've got three of the top five top metros in the United States for rent growth. I mean, Gotta love throw it. a dart and pick someplace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should probably do that. Uh, I bet you could talk about any of the cities here. Uh, but, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, love, 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 love central Florida. Any, any other areas you want to discuss, or maybe we'll, we'll just throw that proverbial dart and we'll just take Wait, one. Pick wherever you want. I, I will say one of those interesting things people think is like, uh, one of the best career moves I made was actually doing this business in central Florida. Cause if you take the skill set I bring and my abilities and move me into Cleveland, my business is not half what it is here because of the exact same reasons that multifamily owners and investors have done so well here. Right. Because it's growing and you've got that drive, that ambition. And obviously you, you attract people who have that same mindset. Good, good, good. Well, um, well, how about this? Maybe we could pivot just a little bit. Uh, you know, when I say that one of the things I love about you, Joe, is you are direct, right? You let people know exactly what to expect. So for all of the amazing investors out there that would love to build a relationship with you, what would you say, what is the best way to do that? Make an offer that's good, show proof of funds, and then close. I good. I like that. I like that. Totally direct. So it's not like, send me feedback, take me, take me out to coffee. My, my, my time's worth about $2, right? That's not the way to get on Joe's good side. <laughs> no, I, I, I have heard that from so many podcasts and gurus out there telling new investors to call up a broker and take them to coffee and it, like why don't you close like <laughs> there's an idea <laughs> so i love it yeah totally direct you always know where you stand with joe and i say that that is a good good trait so yeah by the way though when you do call up joe with that offer make sure to mention uh, how you loved his appearance on the foundry though. He'll appreciate that. <laughs> That's right. All right. Awesome. Well, how about this? Uh, I've got some great statistics today. And again, this is November 17th as we record this. And uh, here you have your Census Bureau uh, HUD stats. And you can see like, whoa, look at the completions, right? We are struggling to get up to 1.5 million, which again, our audience, I hope you know by now, we talk a lot about housing stats. 
1.5 million, that's really replacement rate, right? And you can't see a single point in the last few years. And literally, you could cast this back to uh, August of 2007, and you wouldn't see a single point at which completions exceeded 1.5 million. So we have a, a genuine crisis. Obviously, this is one of the tailwinds that's pushing uh, single family and multifamily prices up. But what do you think about what's going on in the building scene? I mean, the, the, the builders that are just not building, what's going on? Because let's be real, that they don't make money building, they make money selling the real estate afterward. And if it's not profitable, if you're going to take on two years worth of risk, development costs, go through all the construction, and you don't see a clear path to profitability, you're not going to do it. Like this, this is the same thing here. Here in Orange County, like we just we just had on the ballot was a rent uh, stabilization act. So we were talking the county commissioners. They put on the ballot. They're coming out. Oh, we need to help add affordable workforce housing because the rent growth is too high. If you have 1,100 people a week moving, if you have, actually it's almost 900, just under 1,000 people a week, a day moving into Central Florida. If you have that many people moving in, there's no way you're building that many units. If it takes two years to go through process to go permitting, land use, zoning, then go construction, it, like, duh. Like, if you have way more people coming in, and not enough supply, the price goes up. That's what happens. Right, 100%. I'm glad you opened the can of worms on rent control and affordable housing. I mean, I can give you my perspective. My family is in the building business. We're building a 12-unit subdivision out in Troy, Michigan. And I tell you, it is huge risk. And it's no wonder, no small wonder that we're building homes for rich people because, look, that's who can pay. And if we get all stretched out and... And funding dries up now for us. We're self-funded, so that can't can't happen to us. But you know, people who are out there on uh, you know bridge loans, construction loans, if you're floating above prime, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen with lumber, and you've got to have some high margins to work with. And that's literally the only way to get people in there. So thanks for being that voice of reason, and and also mentioning the delays. I got to tell you, being in the building business, time is money. I mean, we must have spent at least two years. Uh, working with the, the city we love, uh, the city of progress. And, uh, but I got to tell you though, that time is money. And if you got to wait a couple of years to get the shovel in the ground, that, uh, that really makes it difficult. And of course, we went for a cluster development. So we were really uh, going for the, uh, the brass ring and we got it, but it, it took the time. And then there you go. But then you got to make the money back because you got, you got to be able to charge. And, and obviously, uh, you alluded to it, but uh, are builders building houses for, uh, for the workforce? You, I don't even know if you could actually build one for the, that would be affordable to the, whatever, 50, under 50% median income. I'm not sure you could actually build a house today for that price. I don't know how we do Between it. Other than cost, development costs, labor. Lumber, right. construction, shingles, roofing, windows, material. Like, I, I don't think you could do it. Yeah, 100%. And I wouldn't try, right? I'd be, uh, and if you did, the margin is so thin, you should have <laughs> just gone and taken your money and bought some treasuries and went to take a nap. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Okay. Sounds like maybe we'll be discussing risk premia later on because uh, things are getting kind of thin out there with the cap rates, right? Um so, so there you go. What, what would you say to that? I mean, when, when you see uh, cap rates, you know, maybe not much above where treasuries are at, 
like, well, why should you buy multifamily or, or where should these, uh, what do you think a healthy risk? You were waiting to hit one of my hot buttons. So (laughs) cap rate is one of the most malleable of metrics. The only one that's more malleable is IRR. Like you want a number that's made up. That is, that's it. (laughs) There's so many assumptions that go into IRR and cap rate and cash on cash return, not even alluded to. They're just this number. Oh, this is the cap rate on this deal. Like, mm-hmm. I've seen a deal underwritten. You could do it two ways. One, it was a 12 cap. One, it was a two cap. Same deal, same everything. Just how it was underwritten. And in the universe that I play in, so this is five to 150 units, mom and pop deals. The, there is no uniformity of under it. We're not, this is not institutional players here where you have audited financials. And that's one of the large mistakes that if you're going to walk away from something and you're a relatively new investor or someone who's looking from out of the area and you look at a cap rate and say, oh, this is, this one's a four cap. This one's a six cap. They could be the same deal because the underwriting is not standardized. So if you have one broker who takes the income statement from an owner, I've seen income statements where they're like, oh, the cap rate is 4.2. You open it up, you look, they've got debt service in it. They got the guy's vacation home. They've got car. Like You're like, no wonder this thing. And you got other ones where you look at it, you're like income. They've got monthly rent times 14. And then they've got expenses that include property taxes. And then there's your NOI. Right. There's So I would caution anyone who's looking at apartment deals that are in this space to take any underwriting and make sure they're doing their own. 100%. I wouldn't even look at the what a cap rate, schmap rate. Uh-huh. What's the rent? <laughs> well, if you don't mind, I'll give you my own uh, hot take on cap rate here. So like we look at cap rate as the driver of price, right? So many people talk about it as if it is, but it's the result of so many things, right? <laughs> yes, it is. A real, that, that's one thing I would say. If, if you're going to spend time as a buyer looking into buying real estate, I, I really like your ideas first you pick the market, then you pick the sub-market and become an expert in those. The specific property is much, you have much more control of it. You can paint the building, do the renovations. You can't, there's nothing you can do to move it. There's nothing you can do. So if you pick the market right, you pick the sub-market correctly, you can affect the building. And if you're doing that, you should know what the rent should be. You don't need to have somebody tell you about it. If you're not sure what the rent should be, I would be very hesitant pulling the trigger unless I felt very confident on that top line number. After that, apartment building, there's not a huge variance. There's real estate taxes, there's insurance, there's repairs and maintenance, you got leasing fees, this is utility costs. If you're a really good operator, you do a little bit better. If you're a terrible operator, you do worse. But if you get the top line number right, you're going to do all right in that investment. Welcome, Bo. Hey, man. What's going on, George? Glad to be here, brother. Oh, wonderful. And it's it's great to have you here today. I know you do so many things. Uh, I love all of the things that you're putting out, all of the info, and I love that YouTube channel. Can you launch us with your trademark? Let's go. 
Let's go. Ah, I love that. <laughs> a great channel, by the way, if you haven't checked out his channel yet, uh, Bono's Multifamily, a lot of great, super amazing information there. Thank you. Appreciate that. Well, I'd like to start with multifamily investors who dominate. Uh, you start the book by talking about margin. So tell us what margin is and how it contributes to you being an elite investor or top performer. Well, margin is, is actually a term. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure where it came from originally. However, uh, a coaching company that I received coaching from the Massimo Group many years ago, the founder, Rod Santo Massimo, a good friend of mine, he would always coach his agents on margin. And what he defined margin was is, is sort of the quality of life component, right? And so, you know, we're all working hard in the multifamily industry on the investment side, on the brokerage side, the lending side, all those things. You know, we're trying to create a life for ourselves where we can actually have time to spend on our hobbies, time to spend with our family, our friends, doing things on the weekend, having actually having a life outside of real estate. And so that's called creating margin, right? And so what I have found is that when I look at some of the best investors in the country, and I look at them just sort of as I gotten to know them personally and what their personal life looks like Monday through Friday after 6 p.m. And what it looks like on the weekends, they have a lot of margin. They've set up, they've hired on the right people, the right staff, they've got the right engine going where that has become a priority to them. Having personal time, having margin to do the things they want to is important to them. And that makes them more attractive. I'm attracted to someone like that because I like to be around people like that rather than just hard charging 24 seven, nothing but business, insane. You know, it, it's just not, it's not something that's sustainable long-term. And so margin has always been something very important to me. And I'm attracted to that on the investor side. That's great. Now, if I could just try to summarize your book in a couple of sentences, I would say that, uh, you know, there are only so many deals out there and there are a very limited number of people who get to see those deals first. And if you want to be those, one of those people, you've really got to be somebody who can transact quickly and in a completely professional manner. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Reputation is huge and building relationships with the brokers who are the ones who control over 90% of the inventory. That's the real name of the game. And there's, a, there's a lot of other components to multifamily, right? I mean, there's, there's management, there's renovations, there's knowing the markets and what rents can go to, how to finance them. Those are all skills that you can learn, right? And, and that's what most of these coaching organizations and, and people who raise others in this business teach them is all those things. But the reality is the, 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 the secret sauce um, the real talent in this business is finding assets because you could be terrible at all that stuff. You could have no money in your pocket virtually, but if you're good at finding assets, if you're fine, if you're good at attracting deals to come to you, you can always find the money. You can always find the partners, the investors, you can learn the management side, but I've always felt like it's how many times at bat you have at a, at, at a deal that really separates the big boys from the, the the, the children. <laughs> Love it. Uh, so tell us about uh, the role of empathy in the deal-making process. Yeah, for sure. I mean, empathy is what it is, man, right? It's like, it's like putting on the hat of the other person. And I think what happens in, in business, not just multifamily, is that we're, we're so focused on win, 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 protecting ourselves, 
And we're in this culture, I think social media drives it a lot too, where, you know, when you see something or you hear something, you read something, i.e. a red line in a contract or a reply to an email, we all get so sensitive and, and we lash back and we think to ourselves, how in the heck can he red line through that, through that mark? And how can he think about doing that? And how can he, you know, how could he possibly imagine not coming off the price when that thing came up during due diligence? And, you know, it's, it's just all of this stuff. Whereas if you just put on the other hat and you, and you think to yourself, okay, he struck through that language on the contract. Okay. Let me think about why. Why is that? If you don't know why that is, ask the broker, ask, ask the, the seller directly, ask the manager. It's kind of trying to figure out instead of villainizing the other side and trying to make them feel like they're the crazy one and you're the right one. Empathy goes a long way in all kinds of situations through the due diligence period, the PSA, um, the sale process, talking to your lenders. I mean, all kinds of stuff. If you just put on the other hat, man, those are the guys that, that attract the most deals because when brokers see that, sellers see that, that reputation builds and spreads. It's the kind of person I want to do deal with. Someone who's going to try to make a deal work, not come up with reasons why the other person's crazy. Right, right. And I love it. And you're not telling people to go out and be a pushover, right? It's more like a, a pick your battles sort of thing. Um, yes, but that, that's part of it. But George, it really is trying to understand the other side, not, not rushing to make a, a, a judgment that what they just decided on or did is nuts. Most people, I would say a large majority of human beings, despite what you may think, because if you're a watcher of news or in social media, most people are reasonable, nice, smart human beings. And I would think the type of human being who owns a $20 million asset ain't freaking stupid, crazy, or mean, right? They don't get to that level for the most part. They at least have some sort of rational intellect. And so the decision they made and whatever it is you think is wrong was made with some sort of brains. And so you just kind of, you know, when you see something, think to yourself, what can I do to solve the puzzle here that gets that person um, in the right place as well as works with mine? That's all. It's super simple as a concept. Very rare is it applied.